Chapter 15 of Autobiography of an Actress by Anna Cora Mollett. Recording by Kelly Taylor. A succession of violent gales rendered our voyage more than ordinarily perilous. The sight of land gladdened our eyes on the fifteenth day. On arriving in Liverpool, we found that the Cambria was reported to have been wrecked off Cape Race. The ship lost was the packet Stephen Phillip, with 91 passengers. A portion of our engine was broken during the passage, and we lay still seven hours while it was repairing. We met no other accident. The stormy voyage brought vividly to mind the terrible recollections of my childhood, the shipwreck and the loss of my young brother. But I was too thoroughly a victim to mal de mer to be susceptible even of fear. We remained a week in Liverpool that I might recover from the effects of this oppressive sea malady and then left for Manchester. First and firmest among the friends we made in a foreign land were Reverend Mr. S. and his wife. Mr. S. had for many years been pastor of a new church society in Manchester. I pause when I would write of these revered friends, and my mind fills with affectionate and grateful remembrances. I need not here record all the evidences we received of a valuable and energetic friendship. They are registered in a more lasting chronicle, to the pages of which I often turn. Previous to our debut, Mrs. S. entertained undisguised fears that we would receive harsh treatment at the hands of the proverbially caustic Manchester critics. She called upon the most ascetic of the cynical brotherhood to smooth the raven down by interesting him in my history. The experiment was only calculated to render him more uncompromising. In another field, she was more successful. Her womanly efforts raised me up an army of defenders amongst the members of her husband's congregation. They were prepared to support me if I betrayed the faintest glimmering of genius. Another anxious friend called upon the theatrical critic of the Manchester Guardian, the leading oracle of the press, and offered to present him to me. The cautious and conscientious critic declined the introduction until after my debut, remarking that a personal acquaintance might prepossess him in my favor and interfere with the justice of his criticism. And of such judges was the tribunal composed before we were to be sifted, scanned, and tested. In such hands were placed distinctions broad and powerful fan, that puffing at all, winnows the light away. If our talents fell short in their fair proportions of some fabulous or imaginary standard, we were to be annihilated by a paragraph, stabbed by thrust of steel in the form of pens, exterminated by the simoon of a critic's breath. Pleasant auguries these to usher in our career in a land of strangers. The theatre was a remarkably beautiful one. The play selected for our debut was, as usual, The Lady of Lyon. Our only rehearsal took place on the day of the performance. 
we could not but notice the half-sneer that flitted across the faces of the english actors during that rehearsal they were incredulous as to our abilities and perhaps not without some cause now and then there was a contemptuous intonation in their voices that seemed to rebuke us for presumption their shafts hit but hurt not our american independence was an aegeus from which the arrows fell without producing any effect but merriment no hand of welcome was extended no word of encouragement was spoken to the intruding yankees we were surrounded by an atmosphere of impenetrable frigidity and yet there were no doubt kind hearts among the doubters but the stars were transatlantic and their light was unacknowledged in that hemisphere even the subordinates of the theatre gave it as their private opinion that these new luminaries would be extinguished without trouble at night when the curtain rose upon pauline the greeting of the audience said plainly let us see what you can do and it said nothing more claude received the same gracious though promiseless permission but even that greeting assured us of that downright generous trait in john bull which makes him the fairest of umpires even where he is a party to the contest once make it plain that he is beaten as in the case of the trial with the new york yacht and he will huzzah for the victor as vociferously as he would have done for himself had he been on the winning side before the fall of the curtain on the fourth act it was decided that the stars were not to be put out at the fall of the fifth they had taken on an honourable place in the theatrical firmament and were allowed to shine with undisputed light the hardiness of the call before the curtain at the conclusion of the play atoned for the shyness of our reception mr davenport thanked the audience in a speech eloquent with genuine feeling and now a marvellous change suddenly took place in the deportment of the actors towards us there was a making way for the successful candidates to the public favour a looking up to instead of the looking down on them sneers and innuendos were magically converted into smiles and congratulations there were even speculations afloat concerning the hit that we would make upon the london stage the debutantes had been as cheerful as could be expected over the distrust and disdain with which they had been treated in the morning and they were now able to be unaffectedly merry at the equally unlooked-for courtesies lavished upon them at night the next morning the critics were unanimous in commendation with the exception of the examiner whom mrs s had attempted to disarm of his ferocity but he was harmlessly savage and reluctantly admitted that the american candidates had gained a foothold in the affections of the english public the guardian reputed to be the critic of the first importance in manchester prefaced his criticism with the following paragraph mrs mawett and mr davenport the american actors exaggeration of a peculiar kind if not rant 
has been so uniformly a characteristic of all the American actors whom we have seen that we have been induced to view it as an attribute of the American stage, that it is not an inseparable attribute. The chastened style of the artist named above, who made their English debut at our Theatre Royal on Monday evening in The Lady of Lyon, satisfactorily demonstrates. Mrs. Mowat, judging from the accounts of her which the American papers have occasionally furnished, is highly endowed with intellect, the cultivation and exercise of which have by no means been neglected, either in the departments of dramatic or general literature. Indeed, in this respect, we know of none of our English actresses who stand a comparison with her except Mrs. Butler. Let us add that Mrs. Mawat has a most engaging person, slight in form, features capable alike of gentle and forcible expression, a voice of silvery sweetness, and that her bearing is marked by refinement. And then we have said enough to prove that she has qualifications for the stage of a high order. Mr. Davenport has a manly person, easy deportment, and an elocution very smooth and agreeable. Then follows a long and elaborate critique on the Lady of Lyon, the manner in which it is represented by Mr. McCready and Miss Fawcett, and finally by ourselves. We appeared every night for a fortnight. In the close of the engagement, the manager informed us that Mr. Maddox, of the Princess Theatre, desired to enter into an arrangement for our appearance in London. This was precisely what we most desired. A few days after our arrival in the great metropolis, all preliminaries were settled, and we engaged to appear at the Princess's Theatre on the 5th of January, 1848, to play alternate nights with Madame Fillion for six weeks. I was thus relieved from the necessity of acting every night and afforded an opportunity for needful rest and even more requisite study. We selected the Lady of Lyon as on previous occasions for our opening play. The cost of its production in London was twenty pounds. This sum gave the theater the right of performance for the whole season. The author demanded the same sum if the play were enacted for a single night. The manager of the princesses objected to so expensive a selection. The usual price paid to an author for the representation of a five-act drama is two guinea per night. After manifold discussions and the endless canvassing of the merits of various plays, we consented to make our debut in The Hunchback of James Sheridan Knoll. Our first rehearsal in an English provincial theatre had not proved particularly delightful, but it was a foreshadowing of, and a needful preparation for, the more aggravated, temper-trying inflictions that awaited us at a London rehearsal. The stage aristocrats of the company made no effort to conceal their absolute contempt for the American aspirants. Figuratively speaking, we were made to walk through a lane of nettles so narrow that we could not avoid getting scratched. The more gently they were touched, the more deeply they stung. At the request, politely urged, of 
be so good as to cross to the right i occupy the left the answer dryly returned was excuse me i played this part originally with miss butler at drury lane i always kept this position it is the proper situation then there was a significant look at the prompter which said this republican dust offends us we must get rid of it the more mildly mr davenport and myself uttered our unavoidable request the more decidedly we were answered with objections to our wishes founded upon the authority of some mighty precedent neither patience nor gentleness could disarm our antagonist wearied out with hearing that mrs butler sat during her delivery of a certain speech and therefore nobody else could stand or that miss fawcett fainted with her head leaning forwards and therefore no julia could faint with her head inclined backwards or that mrs keene threw herself at a certain point into the arms of master walter and therefore the embrace was a necessity i at last boldly and i confess with some temper said sir when i have made up my mind to become a mere imitator of mrs butler or of miss fawcett or of mrs keene i shall perhaps come to you for instruction at present it is for the public to decide upon the faultlessness of my conception i shall not alter it in spite of the very excellent authority you have cited this determined declaration it was certainly a declaration of independence silenced my principal tormentor he made up his mind that if i was wanting in talent i was not deficient in spirit he would have bowed before the one but at least he yielded to the other but this was not my only or most serious annoyance miss susan cushman was to enact the character of helen she sent an apology for her absence at rehearsal on the plea of indisposition the manager chose to imagine that she entertained some theatrical jealousy towards a countrywoman and purposed to absent herself on the night of our first appearance no substitute for so important a part as helen could be provided at short notice and the play would necessarily have to be withdrawn the anticipated debut postponed i could see no reason for supposing that miss cushman meditated any such unamiable intentions as were attributed to her by the manager we were very slightly acquainted but our intercourse had been agreeable miss cushman's name was unceremoniously expunged from the cast and miss emmeline montague the leading lady of the theatre was persuaded by mr maddox to undertake the role of helen at the last rehearsal for we had several just as miss montague commenced rehearsing miss susan cushman walked upon the stage she inquired by what right the character belonging to her was given to another lady the manager who was not celebrated for a conciliatory demeanour towards his company bluntly informed her of his suspicions 
an angry scene ensued such as i never before and i rejoice to say never after witnessed in any theatre rehearsal was interrupted i sat down at the prompter's table in a most unenviable state of mind the actors stood in clusters around the wings enjoying the dispute miss cushman and mr maddox occupied the stage a casual spectator might have supposed they were rehearsing some tempestuous passages of a melodrama. Miss Cushman declared that she would play Helen, for that she had done nothing to forfeit her right to the performance. Mr. Maddox maintained that the part should be played by Miss Montague. Miss Cushman was very naturally exasperated. I remained silent but internally wishing that the disputants might suddenly disappear through some of the trap-doors that checkered the stage and were devoted to the use of fairies and hobgoblins. Finally, Mr. Maddox ordered that the stage should be cleared and the rehearsal continued. Miss Cushman was forced to retire. Just as she reached the wing, she turned back and offered me her hand. I gave mine she departed and the rehearsal proceeded this extraordinary scene in the drama of real life thoroughly unnerved and unfitted me for the business of the hour and that night i was to make my london debut i had not recovered from the painful excitement when i drove to the theatre in the evening to dress for the performance of julia how shall i describe the petty miseries the mountain of vexation made of of unconsidered trifles that rendered that night unspeakably wretched who does not know how much easier it is to endure a great and actual trial than the pinpricks of accumulated annoyances shivering with cold i entered the dreary star dressing-room my newly engaged maid awaited me she was a quiet timid middle-aged woman and appeared nearly nervous as myself is there no fire i inquired with chattering teeth this stove smokes ma'am and the ladies complained so much that i was afraid to have it lighted but i shall freeze while i am dressing the good woman looked distressed and seemed to think it very likely just at this moment the mistress of the wardrobe entered with some dresses which she had persuaded me to let her alter that they might be more in accordance with english taste in a somewhat authoritative tone she bade the maid light all the gas burners informing me that they would sufficiently heat the room they soon created an unwholesome warmth which was however more endurable than the absolute cold the mistress of the wardrobe to my surprise and annoyance seemed prepared to make herself at home in my comfortless apartment in all events it was more than i could do she had belonged to the theatre a number of years and had complacently passed judgment on all the stars whose transitory light had illuminated that firmament her loquacity nearly deafened me but she was a personage of too much importance to be coolly requested to leave the room i did venture a gentle hint by remarking significantly i think i must begin to dress soon but was quite defeated by the quiet tone of acquiescence with which she replied i think you must 
or you won't be ready. I thought of Sinbad the sailor, and of the old man of the sea upon his shoulders who would not be shaken off. I began to dress. My unwelcome visitor poured forth one unceasing stream of gossip as she watched me. Now and then she directed or chid the trimmed maid, but never attempted to assist her. I prepared to arrange my hair. "'Aren't you going to have a hairdresser?' inquired my tormentor, looking aghast at my evident intention of being my own coiffure. "'No, I always dress my own hair.' "'Well, now, let's see what you're going to make of it. What a heap of hair you've got, to be sure.' "'A heap of hair?' I was inclined to be vain of the length and abundance of my hair. I may make the admission now. I looked at her. I will not describe in what manner, but I might as well have looked at the great Mongol under the delusion that he would be awed. The great heap of hair was rapidly divided into a single row of ringlets that fell to the waist. You're not going to leave your hair in that wild fashion. To be sure I am. I constantly wear it so. Good gracious, the audience will guy you. Guy me? Why, yes, guy you, guy you, they will. Guy me? What do you mean by guy, I ask, both becoming alarmed in spite of myself at the unknown horror. Why, laugh at you, to be sure, and chaff you. Chaff me? Yes, clap their hands as if they thought it was very pretty, but all the time be guying you. Don't you know about the 5th of November, Guy Fawkes Day, when they carry a guy about in the streets to make sport of? That's guying. This was a novel style of gunpowder plot and I was standing over the train which my ringlets were about to ignite. I turned from the glass, which reflected a face not very amiable in its expression, and commenced dressing. "'Wait a moment, wait a moment, I have forgotten something,' said my persecutor, and ran out of the room. She returned in a moment and handed me a wadded jupon, very dexterously made to amplify and round the form. I made this for you to wear, for I noticed you had much more figure and a beanstalk. You look as if a breath of air would blow you away. It was true that I was, at that period, excessively thin, my weight being less than ninety pounds, although I was slightly above the medium height. I looked doubtfully at this new and ingenious appliance of the toilette but was finally persuaded to try its effect. To my own eyes, the added breadth gave me a disproportioned appearance, rendering the waist waspish and the shoulders too narrow. I was assured that it was a great improvement and made me look less insignificant. There was no time for alterations, the call boy had tapped at the door and given the summons, Julia, you are called. At the same moment, Mr. Mawet came to conduct me to the entrance, where the Helen of the evening stood waiting. Helen and Julia entered together. As we advanced from the back of the stage, we were greeted with repeated rounds of applause. But it was reasonable to suppose 
that one half of the welcome was intended for miss montague a lady who for her talents and private virtues was held in deservedly high esteem for the first time i comprehended the full meaning of the mystical words stage fright my moment de peur had come at last the malady had seized me and in its worst form with my first attempt to acknowledge the salutation of the audience i lost the ease that marks security to please i could not force my quivering lips into a smile when i spoke i could not hear the sound of my own voice floating mist were dancing before my eyes i saw three faces of helen instead of one what was the matter with my feet when i tried to walk the tiny links of some invisible chain bound them together and my limbs why could not the most resolute effort prevent their tremulous motion my very hair as it touched my shoulders seemed to have a clammy medusa-like coil mechanically meaninglessly i uttered the words of the part and gazed at the triplicated helen with a vacant stare not a hand of applause was raised for julia through throughout the first act nor the second nor the third though the author had afforded manifold opportunities of making points i had never before failed at certain bursts of passion to elicit the responsiveness of the audience but i could make no burst like an automaton i moved inanimately through the part i seemed to myself gradually sinking on a shoreless sea in a dead calm the sea of public condemnation without the power to grasp even at a straw the fourth act commenced master walter leads the penitent julia through the sumptuous halls of her affianced bridegroom's mansion a mirror is supposed to be seen in the distance master walter bids julia look at the reflected image of the mistress in anticipation of these splendors at rehearsal master walter had asked me as he was in courtesy bound to do on which side i preferred the imaginary mirror to be situated i answered on the left it is often confusing even to very old actors to have sides on which they have been accustomed to act unexpectedly changed did master walter remember this when he deliberately crossed the stage and pointed me out to the mirror on the right i was ungenerous enough to fancy that he did master walter hands julia a chair and seats himself beside her at the words o happy steed my heart bounds at the thought of thee thou comest to bear the page from bonds to liberty julia springs joyfully from her seat the action is so natural that it can hardly be avoided master walter had handed me the chair i sat down he took another chair gazed at me mournfully for a moment then deliberately but unconsciously i hope placed it upon my flowing train and seated himself to start up at the required moment without leaving the train behind me would have been impossible 
I endeavored to disengage the foals without interrupting his history of the princess and the page, but unsuccessfully. I tried to attract his attention to the mishap, but he was wrapped in his part. I had no alternative but to utter the required lines without attempting to start up, and to wait patiently until he thought it proper to rise and release me. At the announcement of the Earl's secretary, Master Walter was forced to make his exit. I was prisoner no longer. I stood alone upon the stage. The oppressing influences had vanished. The icy spell was suddenly broken. My paralyzing fears melted away. I delivered the soliloquy, commencing, A wedded bride? Is it a dream? Is it a phantom? With a passioned abandon, that called down a storm of surprised applause. It was the first I had received since I opened my lips. Davenport entered as Clifford. How the scene between Julia and the new secretary was enacted, the plaudits that came down in sudden gust. From the time it commenced, the vociferous attempt to call us before the curtain at the close of the fourth act abundantly testified. I refused to answer the summons, but hastened to my dressing-room to assume Julia's bridal attire. I was myself again, or rather I was once more the character I represented. Had I found the pertinacious visitant in my apartment, I should have dismissed her as unhesitatingly as I threw aside the fictitious embellishment which she compelled me to wear." If, when I appeared on the stage in the fifth act, the audience remarked that Julia had grown mysteriously slender, they were at liberty to conclude that she had pined away and had become erythalized by her sorrows. How I passed through Julia's stormy scene with Master Walter, the audience told me with unmistakable voices. I was no longer panic-stricken. Master Walter might have led me to the wrong side of the stage or taken prisoner my train. He could not now have disconcerted me. I had passed out of the narrow limit to which an actor's malice could reach. Half an hour before, I had stood upon the very brink of failure. By a sudden transition of feeling within myself, a similar revulsion had been produced upon the audience, and their verdict was reversed. That verdict we received at the close of the fifth act, in front of the curtain. The call had never before imparted to me a sensation of such intense pleasure. I needed this marked assurance that I had removed the impression made by my apathetic acting through three weary acts of the play. Mr. Davenport escaped the annoyances to which I had been subjected. The part of Clifford is not one in which he could exhibit the extent of his talents, but his fine person, manly bearing, and quiet, earnest acting won favor. It was six months before I wholly recovered from the mental effects of that first night upon a London stage. End of chapter 15